you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do, I want to encourage you to open them to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, we're going to look this morning at verses 14 down through verse 30, the conclusion of our time together. Uh, it was providential. I didn't plan this or plot it out. We had prepared to do uh, Lord's Supper on this day, and it just so happened in God's providence, the passage deals with Passover. So the last portion of this passage we will use for our time together in communion. But Matthew 26, 14 through verse 30, and as I was studying this text, um, in light of the previous passage with the woman who demonstrates just extravagant worship, I found this text, I found this passage to be uh, somewhat painful. Um, you know, we read these stories and we're so familiar with the passages and, and with the characters uh, that I don't think we fully appreciate uh, the appalling or the shocking nature of Judas's betrayal. I mean, imagine reading this for the very first time and finding out that one of Christ's own guys, the guys that he has ministered to and ministered with and lived with and ate with and uh, been with for three years, one of his own guys was going uh, to betray him. It's, it's shocking. It's appalling. It's, it's painful uh, to watch. And yet, on the other side of that, the more I studied, the more I began to see the overwhelming depths of God's love. Because as they'll gather for the Passover meal, Judas is not the only one of those guys who's going to walk out the door and make a mess of his life. There's 11 other guys that in a short uh, period of time, Jesus is going to be arrested, and they're all going to tuck tail and run. They're all going to make a mess of their... There was a little bit of Judas in all of them, and I think if we were honest with ourselves, we'd agree that there's a, a little bit of Judas in all of us as well. But what we're going to see in this passage is despite how Judas responds to Christ, and despite the mistakes that we'll see the disciples make, Jesus continues to extend a hand of love and mercy and grace. And so if you see nothing else in this passage this morning, I pray you see the unending love of Christ that's extended to sinners like you and like me. So with that in mind, let's pray together, then we'll work our way through this passage. Father, um, as we come to this text, I, I don't know what the morning has been like for all these that have gathered today. But maybe it's been somewhat hectic and hurried. And I pray for just this moment in time that we might calm our hearts and remove any distraction that might hinder us from hearing your voice and your word today. Father, prevent me from doing anything that would muddy the water or prevent somebody from seeing the clear beauty of your word and the beauty of Christ's love and grace. Thank you for your word that is living and active. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do business in all of our hearts today, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the first thing we see in verses 14 through 16 is... Uh, the corruption of Judas. Look with me at verse 14. It says, Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? 
and they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. So Judas is uh, the classic erroneous Jew of his day. He is looking for a Messiah that will liberate the people uh, from the Romans. He's looking for a Messiah who will uh, set up an earthly kingdom. He has seen enough of Jesus' life and, and ministry to know that Jesus is miraculous. He knows that Jesus is divine. He's seen Christ calm the winds and the waves. He's seen Jesus heal the lame and the blind. He's seen Jesus feed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. He's seen Jesus just uh, a day or a few, a few days earlier uh, raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows that Jesus is divine, but he thinks that Jesus is going to establish an earthly kingdom and him, by being on the inner circle, might have some privilege to land, to power, and to wealth. In other words, he's following Jesus for the perks but all this talk of death and, and dying and, and crucifixion, it's just too, too much for him. So he's so caught up in the earthly that he misses the eternal. He wants money and power and wealth. He has no interest in the salvation of his soul. And I believe that the alabaster jar was just kind of the final straw for Judas. He watches Somewhere between fifty dollars and $80,000 go down the drain and he realizes this guy isn't in it for the money and that's it for me. He bails out. He gets his entrance fee. He takes his toys and he goes home. And are there people like that out there today who are just following Jesus for the perks and, and when Jesus doesn't come through as they desire him to, they bail out? And I don't want to mislead anyone. Sometimes God does use the perks as a means of gathering our attention, doesn't he? You remember the paralytic, he came to Jesus, why? Because he couldn't walk. And his friends put him on the roof and they, they dug a hole and they lowered him down. And they put him in front of Jesus. But you remember the first thing that Jesus does with the paralytic, what does he do? He forgives his sins. Now imagine being that paralytic laying in front of Christ, you can't walk, and he says, I forgive your sins. You're probably thinking, that's great, but maybe you haven't noticed, I still can't walk. Sure would be nice. He's probably thinking, that's great, but my greatest need is my paralysis, and the point of Jesus is that your greatest need is not physical, it's spiritual. Your greatest need is the salvation of your soul. And so you might be here today and you're interested in Christ because maybe you're going through a marriage struggle, struggle or, or maybe uh, you're interested in Christ because you have a financial need or, or you have a physical need. But I want to tell you this morning, Christ came not to give you your best life now. He came not primarily to meet your physical needs. He came to meet your greatest spiritual need, which is the salvation of your soul and the forgiveness of your sins. You see, the greatest treasure of Christianity is not enjoying the perks of Christ, it's knowing the person of Christ. Uh, as a pastor, I have an opportunity, as I did this week, to sit with families in the hospital as they go through difficult situations and circumstances. And I have found that for most of these believers, 
the greatest desire of their heart is not necessarily the healing or the physical healing of their loved one. The greatest desire of their hearts in those moments is just the knowledge of knowing that Christ is with them and regardless how it goes, they'll be with him forever in heaven. The greatest treasure of Christianity is not enjoying the perks of Christ. It's knowing the person of Jesus Christ. Well, here we see Judas and All he's interested in is the perks. And when Christ doesn't deliver, he bails out. Not only do I think that he's upset that Christ hasn't delivered as he wanted him to, I think he's also been embarrassed. You remember that then in verse 14 reminds us to look back to the previous passage. It's the the episode with the woman that precipitates this event. And you remember in that instance when the woman brings the alabaster vial of perfume and pours it out, John's gospel tells us it's Judas who scolds the woman and says, what a waste. That could have been sold in the money given to the poor. And we know he wasn't interested in the poor. John's gospel tells us he was, uh, he was pilfering the coffers. He was putting money in his own pocket. He wasn't interested in the poor. But you remember as he scolds the woman, what does Jesus do? Jesus scolds him. And says, you leave her alone. She's doing a good deed to me. And so not only do I think that Judas was frustrated, I think he's embarrassed and he's angry and he's mad. And when you're embarrassed and you're angry and you're mad, you don't tend to make really good decisions. And neither will Judas. In his mind, I think, he says, now I'm done. I'm going to go get my money or make what I can out of this deal. And I can't help but point out here before we move on from this that there is a a beautiful contrast here between the marks of a true faithful Christian and a non-Christian. You see in the woman who brings the alabaster jar of perfume, you see a woman who is obviously filled with the Spirit and an expression of worship. She gives everything she has. And you hear, see with Judas, a man who is filled not with the Spirit. He's filled all right, but he's filled with Satan. And it's not going to lead him to give. His heart will be inclined to say what to the Jewish a leadership, give me. What can you give me? You want to see one of the defining marks of a person who knows Christ is filled with the Spirit? Their heart is inclined to give and worship. And one of the marks of those who are filled with Satan is always to hold back with clenched fists, with greed and malice in their heart. And so we see a great contrast here between the woman and Judas. Judas He's embarrassed, angry, greedy. Temptation meets up with opportunity and takes a very wrong path. We not only see the corruption of Judas, we see the preparation for the meal. Look at verses 17 through 19. It says, now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city and a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. I'm to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. You can imagine Judas, who's now made up his mind he's going to betray Christ. He's made a deal with the Jewish leadership. And as Jesus begins to give direction as to where they're going to take Passover, you can just imagine Judas is leaning in, saying, now I'm going to find out where he's at so I can go tell uh, the, the temple guard. They can bring the soldiers, and they can have him arrested. But does Jesus give them an exact place and location? 
No, as I said to you last week, you will see as we move closer to the cross, Jesus is in complete control. I love what Spurgeon, as he read uh, comments on this verse, he said, in that one verse, you see uh, both the poverty of Christ. He's got no place to take the meal. The foxes have, have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You see the poverty, you see the humility. This would have been like Thanksgiving dinner. He got no place, no home in which to take Thanksgiving dinner. But on the other hand, you see the sovereignty of God, don't you? That the reality is every home in Jerusalem is at his disposal if he just says the word. And so Jesus gives direction, but it's very generic direction to his guys to go and to prepare the meal. And I can just imagine them as he says, go to this house. And they're saying, what house? And he just says, go. And go to a certain man. Now, Mark's gospel gives us a little more information. He's going to be carrying a pitcher. He's a servant-hearted man. There's some symbolism there we're not going to go into today. But he says, go find this man. I'm sure they were asking, what man? Just go. And I think we'd be remiss if we didn't point out that isn't this how God works often in our lives? He doesn't give us more information than we need to take the next step. You just go. See, this is the thing about God. He thinks he's God and he thinks we're not. (laughs) And when he gives us direction, he expects us to move. Acts chapter 8, you remember Philip just go down the road that leads from Gaza to Jerusalem. Just go down there. Well, well, where? Just, just go. And he goes. And I'll give you the direction when you get there. And he sees the chariot. Now I want you to get in that chariot. And it's beautiful how God works in our life to move us as he sees fit. So he gives instruction to the disciples. Now as we think about them making preparation for the meal, it's not like just going to the house and putting some uh, tables out and putting some silverware forks and, and plates out. There was a lot more involved in this preparation for this meal would have started early in the week. They would have gone and purchased an unblemished lamb. Um, The disciples probably did this on Monday of this week. Um, Most commentators believe that they probably kept it at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. We're not sure. But on this day, they would have gone and gotten whatever lamb they had, and they would have taken it to the high priest for his inspection. The high priest would have inspected that lamb to make sure that it was a spotless, unblemished lamb. And then later in that day, early evening, they would have brought the, the lamb to the temple area. And they would come in shifts. There were so many people, they had to divide it up in shifts. Uh, rough estimates that there was probably somewhere between 1.5 and 2 million people in Jerusalem at this time. So a lot of families bringing a lot of lambs to the temple area. And they'd have brought them in shifts. And so here they're bringing all these lambs. They would have brought the lamb, carried it over their shoulders, probably the killing knife stuck in, in, in the lamb's wool, and they would have brought it to uh, the high priest area or the, to, to one of the priests, and, and they would have taken uh, that lamb, and there would have been a trumpet that sound. The trumpet would sound, and when the trumpet sounded, that was your cue, and you would pull back the neck of that lamb, and you would kill it. And lambs, I don't want to be too grabby here, but lambs, when they're killed, they will cry out. And so can you imagine being on the outskirts of Jerusalem on this day? You would have heard the sound of a trumpet and you would have heard the cry of death and then silence. And they had bowls and they would collect the the blood and then they would pass the blood along to a priest. They'd create these bucket brigades and they they would pass the blood along all the way up to the altar area and they would pour out that blood on the altar and they'd created a drainage system whereby all that blood that came off the altar would flow down into the Kidron Valley, and the Kidron Valley would flow with the blood of sacrificed lambs. 
They would have then taken that sacrifice. They would have offered the tail, the fattiest portion of the lamb. They had offered it as a sacrifice, cleaned that sacrifice, wrapped it in a cloth. They would have taken it back to the house where later, as a family, they would have taken a stick. They would put that stick through the ribs of that lamb and they would have crucified it. And later they would roast it and have the meal together. Can you see the symbolism here? In a matter of hours, the perfect lamb of God is going to cry out as he's crucified and dies for your sins and mine. 1,500 years of symbolism is about to be fulfilled in a matter of hours. And the disciples are preparing for this meal. Then finally, I want us to see not just the preparation, but the examination prior to the meal. Look at verses 20 through 25. It says there, now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12 disciples. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, surely not I, Lord. And he answered, he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, surely it's not I, Rabbi. You'll notice there. He doesn't call him Lord. He calls him Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. So they're sitting at a table. It would have been a three-winged table called a triclinium. No chairs. We see the painting with the chairs. No chairs. They would have cushions under their left arm. They would have used their right hand to eat the, the meal. And Jesus is there, and, and Judas is at his left, which was a place of honor, is also a position which he could, Jesus could lean back and very easily give communication to Judas without the rest of the group knowing. John is to his right. And there they are preparing to take this meal, and Jesus begins by making a, a shocking declaration. He says, one of you is going to betray me. And it says that each of them cried out, and it's said in such a way that it's not like they just all began yelling it out. It's said in such a fashion that they each one said, surely not I, as they worked their way around the table. See, I believe this wasn't just about eliminating Judas from the group. It was about causing every one of them to examine their own heart. What's interesting is that no one in the group, none of them collectively look over and say, it's probably Judas. They did not expect Judas. There was no indication that he was a betrayer. In fact, every time Judas speaks in Scripture, the disciples agree with him. He was well-respected. He was sophisticated. He was learned. He was from the South, probably the only educated disciple. He was a Harvard grad. The rest of them are from West Virginia, Kentucky. If you're from West Virginia, Kentucky, I'm sorry. But they're blue-collar folks is what I mean. Oklahoma, Indiana, just good common folk. So... They, they were, they're blue-collar guys. This guy's the learned guy. He's the educated one. They let him take care of the money. Why didn't they let Matthew? Matthew's IRS guy. You don't trust the IRS. We're going to give it to Judas. And so Judas takes care of the, but this is a well-respected guy. Nobody expected this. This, to me, is the most dangerous part. That we can look the part, we, we may even be part of the church, we can enjoy the, the blessings of the church in Christ and never have received the reconciliation that's offered to us in Jesus Christ. 
we see throughout Matthew, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In Judas, we are reminded again that the true mark of Christianity is not membership in a church. The true mark of Christianity is not saying a prayer. It's not getting dunked in a pool. It's not walking an aisle. The true mark of Christianity is endurance and perseverance to the very end. That's the mark. The, the means of salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ. But the mark of, of salvation is endurance to the end. All of these guys were on the same team. All of them were part of the same group. But one of them was not of Christ at all. In light of this, it's important that all of us examine ourselves. As in just a moment, we will take this meal together. Paul said in his instructions concerning the Lord's Supper in Corinthians, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he's to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. He said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. All of us need to examine our hearts today because we are responsible for where we're at. This passage, this text teaches very clearly both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Right here in one passage, we see both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. We see the responsibility of Judas. Jesus said, verse 24, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Jesus is saying, Judas, it's, I think he's kind of warning him, Judas, you are responsible You are culpable for the decisions that you make. And yet, does Jesus know what he's going to do? Certainly he does. But does Judas have a choice? Yes, he does. Will God use his choice in perfect accordance with his sovereign will and plan? Yes, he will. It's a reminder that we are responsible. Judas is not a puppet on a string. He's not pre-programmed. Even in Luke 22, it talks about Satan entering his heart. Listen, that is not some kind of uh, unwelcomed invasion into Judas's heart. That's a welcome invitation. Judas opened his heart to the work of Satan. Make no mistake about it, he was more than willing to have Satan's assistance in what he wanted to do. But it was his choice. He was responsible. Uh, Howard Hendricks, Dr. Hendricks at DTS said um, he was teaching on this and he had a student who asked him, Dr. Hendricks, if Jesus knew everything, why did he pick Judas? And Dr. Hendricks said, well, I got a better question for you. Why did he choose you? And I got an even better question than that. Why would he choose me? See, that's why, again, I just continue to see the overwhelming grace of God extended to Judas even when Christ knows the choice that he's going to make. If this does not show you the infinite love of Christ, you're missing it. See, even after this, did Judas have an opportunity to return to Christ? To me, that's the saddest part of the whole story is that here is a guy who saw Jesus on every occasion when somebody came to him with a repentant heart of forgiveness. Jesus always welcomed him. 
And yet Judas would never return. And he was responsible. And you and I are responsible. We have the ability to say no to Satan and yes to Jesus Christ. And you are responsible for the decisions and the consequences of those decisions in your life. Every one of us in this room, you're either going to spend eternity with God forever in heaven or you will spend eternity away from God forever in hell. Heaven and hell are family reunions. But you have a choice about which family you're part of. The opportunity to trust in Christ and become a child of God is even open to you this morning. But you cannot get to the moment of judgment and blame somebody else. As we often say, the buck stops with you. And that is a biblical idea and principle. Just as Adam and Eve were responsible and just as Judas is responsible, so are you and I. So right now, before we take this meal, what I want us to do is to take a moment to examine our hearts. So if you would, right where you're at this morning, would you just take a moment to to bow your head as we enter into a time of invitation. I want us just to examine our hearts. Can I ask you, first of all, what's the inclination of your, your heart today? Is your life all about the accumulation of stuff? Are you just following Jesus for the perks? Is it all about you? It's all about what you can get? Where's your heart at today? Are you walking in faithfulness? Are you enduring today? This doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you don't ever get off track, but it means that the overall direction of your life is towards Christ. You can see him working. You can see him moving even when you sin to experience conviction and to be drawn back. Are you walking in faithfulness? Some of you are here this morning. You know in your heart you're not a Christian. You've never trusted in Christ. Maybe you walked an aisle. Maybe you said a prayer. Maybe you even got dunked in a pool. But you know there's never been real change. You've never had a rebirth by means of faith. And you need to give your life to Christ. Some of you are here, you say, I know Christ, but but I've made some bad choices. I've drifted. Maybe greed or or lust or, or anger or materialism has gotten you off track. Can I encourage you today? Come home to Jesus. See, at the opposite side of Judas is a Peter who would encounter Christ on a shore cooking a meal And he wouldn't wait for the boat to return to shore. He leapt into the water and ran to Christ. And can I tell you this morning, if you'll turn to Christ, he's ready to receive you today. There's only two people in this room this morning who know where you're at. It's you and God. God is not a God of confusion. You'll seek him and you'll find him when you seek him with all your heart. (laughs) But he is a polite God and he's a polite savior. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He won't barge his way in. You've got to invite him in. The choice is yours. Father, we pray this morning that you would work in all of our lives to draw us to yourself. You have a way of revealing the condition of our hearts. God, show us who we are and draw us to yourself. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we give you an opportunity to respond in whatever way God might be leading your heart. Maybe you have questions about salvation, how you can know Jesus Christ. There'll be pastors here at the front who would love to talk with you, who would love to pray with you. Maybe you just want to pray. Maybe you want to continue in prayer as we prepare for this meal. This is your time. Know this morning, you'll never regret obeying Jesus. So you respond as we sing.